Hello all and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT news of the week. I'm your host, Rich Straffolino, editor with Gestalt IT. Joining me from across the frozen tundra that is the Midwest slash Rust Belt, whatever you want to call Northeast Ohio, is the one, the only, Ken Nalbone. Ken, are you staying toasty? I'm trying. This is the last time you'll see me sitting down today. I'm going to do the standing desk thing to try to stay warm for the rest <laughs> of the day after this recording. Just keep shuffling your feet. That's what I learned from the Untouchables. That's the plan. All right, Ken. Well, let's just jump in with kind of the big newsiest story that I think uh, was is definitely hitting the mainstream media, and I think definitely has some tech angles as well. Did you think we hit peak Huawei with the arrest of their CFO late last year? Don't answer that, Ken, because if you did, you'd be a fool. U.S. prosecutors have now filed criminal charges against Huawei, alleging stealing of trade secrets and bank fraud to cover up doing business in Iran. In a 13-count indictment filed in New York, the government alleged wire and bank fraud and conspiracy dating back to 2007, while a charge brought in Washington State alleges stealing trade secrets about a phone-testing robot, I believe it's called Tappy, from T-Mobile in 2012. That's a real thing that has happened that could have major implications for Huawei, a robot named Tappy. Uh, and they also uh, are alleged to have given bonuses to employees who engaged in corporate espionage to steal trade secrets. All of this comes in the backdrop of continuing trade negotiations between the U.S. and China. Ken, is the U.S. succeeding in broadcasting to companies and allied countries that they're just going to make a toxic deal with Huawei in any way? If you're in any way going to be touching with the U.S., you cannot also do business with Huawei, I think is what they're trying to do. Are they being successful? It, it, it certainly seems like that to me. This is uh, the story that just keeps on giving. And the more we hear, the further down the rabbit hole, I wonder if we're going to go. Uh, in the beginning, I thought maybe the U.S. is just targeting Huawei as part of their you know, trade war, as a strategy uh, with China. But a as more details come out, the worse things look for Huawei and the more justified U.S. position seems to me, at least. But of course, I'm an American citizen. I hear our news outlets, but... It, it, that's the way it looks to me. And even if you don't necessarily trust the government, the U.S. government, if you want to deal with us, you know our stance on Huawei now or our government stance on Huawei, it's probably going to have an effect. Yeah. And if, if you're just kind of catching up to the story, I mean, the Gestalt IT rundown is replete with uh, uh, kind mm -hmm. of updates on this story. And, and of course, we'll continue to follow it. Um, I think the most significant to me in, in kind of this step, obviously, the arrest of their CFO and the attempted extradition, I believe, is still going on in Canada um, right now. That's that's a personal charge. These are charges that are now filed against the company in, in basically with the with involving the same case. Mm -hmm. um, I think from a from a policy position, I think it's more significant that late last year we also heard that the U.S. is basically offering to subsidize uh, 5G infrastructure in allied countries if they don't choose Huawei, if they go with Nokia or you know another um, uh, telecom infrastructure provider. Um, I think that could have major implications. I mean, but the fact is, I believe Huawei just came out with their earnings. They're still uh, making what I would refer to as bags and bags of cash. They're still going to be dominant in China for in, in you know the second largest economy in the world for years to come, and they've continued to operate without being able to basically sell almost any, well, not almost anything, anything to consumers in the U.S. Um, they actually do have quite a bit of reach um, when it comes to smaller ISPs in the U.S., which could have big implications down the road if there is an all-out ban. Given, you know, kind of the political uh, uh, headwinds here, uh, yeah, we're, we're a long way from over on this, and we'll keep you up to date. And, you know, if, if there is some, some sort of ban or some sort of, uh, you know, major policy position that'll require tearing up some infrastructure, we'll be here for that as well. Mm-hmm. 
The other thing we'll be here for are the inevitable data leaks. And this time, security researcher Oliver Huff tipped off TechCrunch that a server of customer data belonging to the data management startup Rubrik was online without password protection. The server was hosted on Amazon Elasticsearch and contained tens of gigabytes of customer names, contact information, and casework dating back to October 2018, including giant, I mean, it was basically encompassing their entire customer base, but big companies like Deloitte, Shell, Amalgamated Bank, uh, the UK's National Health Service, and Homeland Security were specifically mentioned uh, in the TechCrunch report. Uh, when alerted by TechCrunch, Rubrik took the server offline, stated that no customer-owned data was exposed. So, you know, you had Rubrik's internal communications with those companies, but not anything that those companies were actually storing mm -hmm. on Rubrik servers or anything like that. Besides the irony of a data management company not you know, managing data well. Uh, is social engineering schemes the biggest threat posed by this kind of data leak, Ken? Based on the description of the data that was exposed, you know, which is just primarily some customer names and email addresses and then the interaction history Rubrik had with them. Yeah, most likely social engineering is the biggest risk, but more importantly, it's a bad look for a data management company, as you mentioned. And you know, it's just another case of somebody using a cloud service where human error is to blame for a lapse in security. And, and really what it is highlighting is that before you put any data in the cloud or design any cloud native application, you need proper security and governance as part of your project. They need to be baked in and not an afterthought. And also this claim that Rubrik has that, you know, uh, nobody accessed it other than the security researcher. It'd be nice if there was some kind of evidence to back that up because I'm, you know, I'm sure there's going to be some skepticism about that. And also there's going to be criticism about why are you using live customer data in what was essentially a sandbox environment for test and dev. Yeah, well, and then the other, you know, the other big thing is that this, you know, to their point about the security research being the only way to access it, this was indexed on Shodan from what I understand, you know, the kind of the IoT, um, uh, search engine that's out there. Um, so yeah, I, I really would like to see some log files to verify that. Um, right, obviously, yeah. you know, it's in Rubrik's best interest, I, I would think, to disclose that to customers. Maybe they are disclosing it to customers if that's maybe not the case. Um, but as you know, kind of one of the the more recent, you know, I refer to them as a uh, uh, you know data management startup. Really, they're a data management unicorn at this point. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a there's a lot of money on the line, possibly an IPO down the line. So best to get this in line. I just can. How it you stated that you know data governance, data security has to be baked in at the ground level. Is yeah. is this just a matter of this got replicated to the cloud some way and someone didn't check a, a checkbox or something? Like like, do you think that that's how this happened, or how easy is it to mess this up? I guess is what I'm asking. Well, data management companies like Rubrik <laughs> make it very easy to move your data around and repurpose it. And as if you're giving that access to whatever API that allows that replication to occur to a developer without the proper governance, as we mentioned, to make sure that they are doing the right things with it, that they don't have access to things they shouldn't have access to, or before this data is moved and replicated and made available anywhere else, somebody who understands the implication has to approve it, then you're going to get in trouble. So it needs to be part of any workflow, basically, is the point. It, yes, it's really easy to do interesting things with your data, but it's also <laughs> really easy to get things wrong and expose it to nefarious actors. Yeah, and I do have to wonder, you know, Obviously, it's also in Amazon's best interest to try and bake in as much protection as we saw them. I think it was last year, finally, mm -hmm. by default, encrypt S3 buckets so you wouldn't see the story 
every other seemingly every other month where a massive S3 bucket was just left sitting out there. Um, you, you know, I, I wonder if either through an acquisition or maybe, you know, next year at reInvent or something like that, we will see them come out with, hey, we're going to algorithmically do a security audit on all your Elasticsearch yeah. and S3 buckets to make sure, you know, you're in compliance with what, you know, kind of intent based security, basically for cloud. Um, I wouldn't be surprised at that as well. Yeah, me neither. There's certainly uh, a number of companies doing that already that would make it sense for an acquisition for Amazon. The important thing is, though, that, you know, Elasticsearch might be in the number of things that they index and pay attention to with these products. I mean, there are so many services within Amazon that you can put data into that I don't, it's difficult for anybody to keep up with and write an API against it that will be able to index and search and, you know, as you were saying, in an automated fashion, do some kind of security and compliance checks. So it's kind of, you can't rely on those, I guess, is my point. Yeah, it's a nice it's a nice backstop, you know, but yeah, you need like like you were saying, it needs to be baked in uh, from the ground floor. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right. Well, Ken, big news coming out of Slack that they announced just before their five year anniversary. The company now has over 10 million daily active users worldwide, perhaps more importantly for Slack as, you know, a money making company. Presumably uh, paid customers have grown 50 percent on the year to 85,000. That's like 85,000 organizations, not 85,000 people paying for Slack, although. Good, because I was wondering about that number. <laughs> yeah, they said it ranges from, you know, teams of tens of or, you know, like, sing, you know, single digit teams to tens of thousands of teams, you know, uh, and, and to kind of back that up, they are saying they're now being used uh, in 65 of the Fortune uh, 100 and that over half of their daily active users are in non-English speaking countries showing strong international growth as well. Japan is actually their second biggest market outside of the U.S. The companies were growing linearly in terms of daily active users since the start of 2016. So they had a little over, I believe, 2 million in 2016, uh, going up to uh, 4 million in 2017. You know, you can see what the projection is there. Uh, so it's not uh, it's not the, you know, uh, inverted hockey stick, I believe is what they call for exponential growth, but very steady, very consistent growth. Do you think that this makes, uh, do you think this shows that the company can stave off the competition coming from Microsoft Teams? We had a report last year mm -hmm. that basically was very pessimistic for the future of Slack. A lot of uh, big uh, organizations and even small organizations really seriously looking at Microsoft Teams comes baked in with Office 365. Is this hope for Slack here or is this just trying to toot their own horn? I think it is some hope. Some hope, as you noted, you know there are a lot of organizations looking into Microsoft Teams. Um, I, I came from one of them before, and I know a few others as well who are giving it a shot. But I haven't heard a whole lot of stories of people falling in love with and having great success with Teams yet. Um, now Microsoft is trying to challenge them and continually, you know, doesn't just offer the product for free, but makes improvements to it as well. So Slack is in for a fight, but they're still clearly the leader in this space in my mind. And, um, you know, I think really the bigger threat is, are, are we going to start seeing just, you know, Slack fatigue out of, out of folks? I'm myself a member of like a dozen different Slack workspaces and only one of them, I truly basically stay on top of nonstop. And of course that's work. And the other ones, uh, you know, have basically disabled notifications or kind of dropped out of certain channels that I wasn't particularly active in because it was just nonstop notifications that weren't relevant, were consuming too much time. And you got to wonder, is that sustainable for all the multiple workspaces out there that, you know, especially all the non-paying ones, are people just going to get tired of it and walk away at some point, you know, much less switch to Teams? Yeah, it does make me wonder if at some point, you know, Slack will have to do maybe a little bit of a... A UI or, or usability change mm -hmm. to kind of combat that kind of fatigue, and then does that that change open the door for a competitor like a Microsoft, who who has you know kind of productivity, you know kind of built into their DNA in terms of Office. They know what people like to use, you know, kind of on a day to day basis. Like I, I don't want to undersell 
the ability of Microsoft to execute on productivity software, as dumb as that may sound. <laughs> um, but the the you know the problem that Slack is always going to have is when people are looking at you know moving to that paid option outside of the inertia of already being with Slack. You know, if mm -hmm. uh, most organizations, maybe not most but are either gonna be paying for G Suite or they're gonna be looking at Microsoft Office. And if it already comes rolled in with this Teams feature that you're paying for anyway, I can see a lot of people maybe giving that a look, especially if they, if, if Microsoft is proactive in terms of kind of batting that channel fatigue and stuff like that, especially as the the novelty of, of kind of Slack-based, channel-based communication mm -hmm. wears off over time, uh, we will see. Uh, it, it's surprising to me to see, you know, uh, Microsoft kind of being insurgent on this point. I remember when Facebook launched their kind of uh, ersatz uh, uh, Slack competitor, uh, Facebook work or something like that. I don't even remember that one. I, I actually was like, I, I thought they had kind of a good idea going with this. Like, oh, it's like, you know, Facebook, but for work, as dumb as that may sound. Uh, <laughs> turns out no one cares about that. No one cares about Hangouts, chat, app, Slack competitor thing that Google is going to botch five times before they actually make something that's competitive. Um, so I, you know, it's interesting that this is kind of a two horse race right now. Um, we'll see if there's room in the market for more or if, uh, if this will be a uh, battling it out between, you know, kind of the smaller devs, uh, maybe preferring Slack and larger organizations, although, you know, they have penetration in the fortune 100. We'll see. Yeah. All right, so uh, let's pour some out here, Ken. Uh, the register reports that HCI startup Maxta is shutting down. The company was founded in 2009 and has received $35 million in funding with the last round going through in 2014, but has been unable to get further funding and is basically out of cash. Uh, we at Kishalt IT, myself, uh, wrote about them in 2017, just uh, two years ago now, and they were offering, uh, and kind of just to kind of sum up if you're not familiar with Maxter, they were offering a uh, hardware agnostic software-centric HCI approach. Basically, mm -hmm. they had certified software that you can install, uh, or they had certified hardware, excuse me, that you could install their software on a number of different platforms, um, and their main pitch was really based on cost savings compared to other HCI companies. Uh, they were saying, you know, save 50%, you know, as compared to something competitive from Nutanix, for example. Uh, interestingly, though, because my first thought was, oh, you're you're pitching cost savings. My first thought is you're going after SMBs. You're, you're kind of going for that mm -hmm. smaller market. And they were like, no, 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 no. Do not say we're going for SMBs, which was really weird to me that you would be so caught up on cost and still going for big customers anyway. Uh, I think it's really interesting now that with solutions uh, from HCI startups, uh, we're talking about Nutanix, Scale Computing, Datrium, and then IT heavyweights like NetApp, HPE, Dell EMC, and Cisco mm -hmm. all kind of making HCI plays. The market is clearly going to be tough to compete in for anyone that's you know kind of on the smaller side. Do you think we'll see further consolidation in the HCI market that some of these other startups eventually start running out of cash? Maxa was particularly underfunded, you know, going yeah. five years now uh, without a funding round. Uh, or were the, was Max just an outlier that you know just didn't have the right approach, right kind of pitch? Uh, you know, for them, it, it, this is a crowded market, and they didn't have enough of a differentiator, as you said. Co um, cost is not a great one to to play on unless you're targeting SMBs, which is kind of like where our friends at Scale fit in. Uh, you know, that, that that that's their market segment. Good for them. Um, really, you know, for most folks, what HCI is all about is simplicity, and you know. Sometimes there's different ways to uh, differentiate in, in, in that space. Like, you know, Daytrium's doing something kind of different than say, Nutanix or Dell EMC with VxRail in, in the way that they are kind of disaggregating the compute from the storage and offering a bunch of different features that may not exist in either of those platforms. Maxta, I, you know, I hear their tech was solid in terms of how the platform worked, but it wasn't that much different. And that's not really going to get you very far. And as what you mentioned, is a very crowded space. You need something different, something compelling. 
Yeah, and, and their kind of uh, a long-term strategy, I think, was to get channel partnerships where they were working with Lenovo to get into China, uh, but that kind of floundered uh, as of last year. And, you know, we saw we saw Lenovo kind of partnering with other companies in the country. Um, and as we know, any non-Chinese company trying to compete in China always has some challenges anyway, even though Lenovo is a Chinese company. Um, so, yeah, uh, sad to see Max to go. We had some interesting conversations with them, briefings from time to time. Like you said, interesting tech, uh, but HCI, it gets tough. And what I think is even more interesting, you know, mentioned Datrium, uh, same kind of thing for for NetApp in terms of, you know, maybe not like the, uh, you know, the when you when you Wikipedia search for HCI, maybe isn't the ideal diagram for that, but they have an interesting approach to it that is unique and get, you know, kind of plays to some unique advantages. It, it's tough to compete when, yeah, cost is kind of your, your only uh, differentiator mm -hmm. meaningfully for a lot of organizations. Uh, let's see here. And finally, before we get to our kind of uh, my favorite story of the day, we're going to be talking about Samsung. They have a new chip. That they announced the world's first one terabyte flash chip, that meaning that phones, uh, systems on a chip, and other devices can have that amount of storage in a single very tiny chip. Samsung is setting read speeds of up to 1,000 megabytes per second, about 10 times what you could expect from a micro SD card, uh, which is, this is what I think they're long-term are going to replace in a lot of their mobile devices. Um, Ken, do you think this kind of uh, storage capacity finally will justify removing micro SD slots from phones? And that's just a lot of, that's a really dense storage in a tiny package. It is huge. I, not, nothing seems to surprise me anymore. The way I've seen storage, I'm, you know, I'm older than you, Rich. So I, <laughs> I've seen it as go from, you know, having only kilobytes available inside a system uh, and, and seeing storage just continue to just grow exponentially, it seems, inside devices. Um, you know, is it, a, is it compelling enough? Is it going to get, you know, SD cards out of smartphones uh, forever? Only if it's affordable. I mean, it didn't mention cost anywhere uh, when I was looking at this announcement. And, you know, yeah, it's great that I can get a terabyte, but but if it adds another grand to the price of my phone, well, no, I don't want that. You know, I'll I'll stick with the uh, smaller amount, and if I really need it, I'll get a phone with an SD card slot to expand it. You know, and just kind of count on that. But it, it, it is interesting though that Samsung is one of the few manufacturers that's been very adamant with sticking with an SD card slot on phones, mm -hmm. and they are also the ones that are going to be selling this chip that seemingly makes that you know, kind of an arbitrary issue at this point, at least until we get 8K video on phones that, you know, takes 10 gigabytes to take a five second video. And right? nobody wants to ever delete their cat videos off their phone after they exactly. take them in 8K. Exactly. Worth, worth, definitely worth preserving. 8K cat photo, 8K cat photo, three times fast. There we go. All right. And finally, uh, Ken, I don't know if you enjoyed this reading the story as much as I did, but the Japanese government approved a law amendment that would allow employees of the National Institute of Information and Communications Technology to survey Internet of Things devices in the country. I say survey, but what I really mean is hack into. Under the supervision of the Ministry of Internal Affairs and Communication, NICT employees will be able to use default passwords and password dictionaries of common passwords, whatever the ABC123 equivalent in Japan is, mm -hmm. uh, to attempt to log into these IoT devices. The Institute will then compile a list of insecure devices to pass on to authorities and alert ISPs to. Survey will kick off in February and aims to look at over 200 million devices on both consumer and business networks, which I'm sure a lot of uh, IT admins are really going to appreciate. The hope is to secure these devices ahead of the 2020 Summer Olympic Games in Tokyo. Basically, what the Japanese government doesn't want to happen is someone makes a giant botnet of all these insecure IoT devices in the country and, you know, hammers away to make a big scene when they're trying to highlight uh, what the country has to offer, although I think I don't know. Japan's not like a secret to anybody, uh, yeah. but they don't want to have a big incident during the Olympic Games. 
what do you think about this kind of I, I like I I, I, I kind of I kind of like it. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> like a good like goal to have. Like, yeah. Hey, let's let's not have embarrassing security happening on all these IoT devices in our country. Uh, the tactic for accomplishing that, I'm not so sure. I'm a huge fan of. I really hope they have some kind of notification about this and education going out ahead of time to help people proactively secure devices before they just start doing uh, basically a penetration scan on every <laughs> IoT device they can find on every network in their country. Um, yeah, it could go bad. It could it could result if it's not done carefully in some very negative side effects. You know, both from a public sentiment perspective to a oh no, we accidentally took down some network by scanning every single open port on the in every IP address in that range type of thing. So, well, and I got to be careful. I, I wonder if they you know if they put out a report that says you know we discovered that sixty million routers uh, are all using you know these programmatically generated passwords that are you know you can that you can model what the algorithm was for generating these passwords. And then that just makes a bigger target. Like they have to be, I feel like they have to be one very careful about how they disclose what this survey finds. If this is going to be internal, if this somehow gets leaked, um, even if it's even if it's just broader uh, implications, if it's just percentage of devices, um, if you know, if sophisticated actors um, see that and make that a big enough target, obviously, uh, I think that puts a big target on a lot of people's backs. In terms of businesses, I wonder if there is any lot like. I like the fact that they're working with ISPs, right? So mm -hmm. that, you know, uh, I, which I feel like really applies to big businesses, big organizations where they say, hey, you know, all those um, Amazon Echo devices you installed in your hotel chain, they're all unsecured. Please, you know, change this password or something like that. Um, that's something where you can notify the hotel chain or you can notify, you know, whoever and uh, through their ISP th and they can take meaningful action on that. Uh, yeah, I do have to wonder on a consumer level, you know, if, you're, if your Samsung smart TV is fundamentally insecure or whatever. I think there was a thing about that uh, late last year uh, that those could very easily be hacked and use default passwords. Mm -hmm. You know, is is the John Q public uh, going to be able to take meaningful steps? Yeah, education, I think, is the next step. Um, and if, But if they crack that, uh, you can send that information over to the US because I'm sure, you know, ours is just as bad if not worse, uh, of people changing oh, their no default doubt. passwords. Yeah. yeah. We're just uh, a little less susceptible due to the lack of Huawei equipment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's called a callback, by the way. Change all your Huawei passwords. Yeah. Uh, and they're definitely, Japan is definitely one of the countries the U.S. Uh, wants to pay to not to use Huawei. Uh, so I think that just about brings us to the end of the Gestalt IT Rundown. Ken, uh, will you be trying to hack into any IoT devices uh, in the next week before uh, we speak again? Only the ones within my own home. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, so we, until then, we'll be back next Wednesday at 12.30 p.m. Eastern time running down the IT news of the week. If you have any items to send me, you can send it to me. Uh, you can just email me, uh, rich at gestaltit.com. Uh, uh, you can send it to me on Twitter at Mr. Anthropology. Uh, or you can leave a comment on something I write on gestaltit.com. I feel like that's the most indirect way, but if that's your bag, go ahead. You can also probably leave a comment on this Facebook post or YouTube link, or I'm pointing down because I'm presuming that's where it is. Ken, where can people find your good stuff? Similar places. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Ken Nalbona. Also check out my writing on gestaltit.com. Uh, if you love LinkedIn, feel free to connect with me there, but you're going to get a lot less responses there. <laughs> if you love LinkedIn, you may have a problem. You That's may. all I want to say. You can like LinkedIn as a friend. I'm just saying, question your life choices if love is the word you would use. Uh, until next time we meet, remember everybody, have a super sparkly day.